0: I got drunk because I liked the effect produced by alcohol. Today, I stay sober because I love the effects produced by Alcoholics Anonymous.
1: Well, hello, friends of Bill W. and other friends. You have landed on Sober Speak. My name is John M. Well hello friends and family, that was the voice of Mr. Joseph that you heard at the beginning of this episode and you're going to hear so much more, so much more. From him, in just a moment, I know you're going to enjoy it. And uh, you know, I just thought about something. I'm saying friends and family. Uh, I kind of like how that sounds, but I almost sound like I am uh, selling one of those uh, mobile plans by the cellular people on television. But uh, actually, I got, I got nothing to sell for you today. Well, you know, I take that back. I do have something to sell. We are selling. Well. We're not even selling, right? If you want what we have and are willing to go to any length to get it, then you are ready to take certain steps. Let me put it that way. We operate by attraction rather than promotion within the 12-step community. And uh, so we do sell or promote. Is that how you want to put it? Experience, strength, and hope. Uh, and if you want what we have, great. If not... No problem. We wish you luck and uh, we hope, we really do truly hope that you find whatever you are looking for. All right. So um, I am coming off a week of the flu. What a winter this has been. I know many of you out there listening uh, have experienced uh, the flu this season as well. And uh, I, I was able to watch. Way, way too much uh, TV, more than I ever one or two this week. And, you know, I kind of I took a little bit of a liking to that. uh There's a show on there called, uh on, on there, the TV, the telly, called 90 Day Fiance. Uh, and uh, for those of you who hadn't seen it, ah, I'm not going to describe it. But, well, okay, here I go. So it's basically two people that get together. Usually they're from different countries and such like that. And they have 90 days to decide if they want to, Get Married or not? it is quite a show. And you know, while I was watching it, it kind of reminds me of people when they come in to Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, everybody around them can see that there are, quote, issues, uh, unquote, and a, and a lot of uh, red flags, if you will. And uh, uh, everyone can see it, but the people involved in the situation, they cannot see it. Much like when people come into AA, they are just kind of laser focused on living their lives, quote, as is getting people off their back. And they cannot for the life of them understand why people are not behind them 100%. They just can't see it. So anyway, uh, I don't know, if you have a chance to cast that show, I, I, you, I, what, I'm not promoting it. I don't, I don't really care, but it was just kind of interesting uh, watching it Well I was laid up in bed this week. By the way, the goal of my intro on this podcast is to keep from coughing. So far, so good. But if we have a cough or two in there, hey, you guys will uh, you'll you'll do just fine anyway. Oh, and you know, and also when I was uh, kind of laid up in the bed, there's a lot of stuff about this uh, a corona virus going around. Uh, and uh, every time I heard that, I would think, well, I had the original corona virus. You know what I mean? Corona lime and tequila virus. I'm sure some of you out there can relate to that. All right, folks, I, John M., will be the chairperson for this meeting between meetings, and I am truly honored and privileged to serve all of you listening in. If, indeed, you are not in our secret Facebook group and you would like to be part of that community, that community has uh, amazing like-minded friends bill w alan on or other 12-step programs that are in there and uh, it's different than just so you know this people can find the the sober speak uh, uh facebook the public page uh but in order to get into the uh the secret facebook group send me your email associated with your a facebook account and it has to be the one associated with the facebook account and i will send you an invite so you can get on in there and enjoy all the fun uh if you're not following us on instagram it's at sober speak all one word a twitter is sober underscore speak and um, that's about all I got. Keep this in mind. You can find us on the World Wide Web at www.soberspeak.com. There you can find the donate button on our website, which you can use if and only if the spirit moves you to do such. Please keep in mind, this is a podcast funded by you, the listener. Soberspeak is a self-supporting organization through our own contributions. We are not allied with any sect denomination, politics organization or institution. We do not wish to engage in any controversy, neither endorse nor oppose any causes or TV shows for that matter. Anyway. All right. Now on to Mr. Joseph. I recorded this at the Tri-Cities meeting of North Texas uh, recently and uh, Joseph did a bang-up job, and we wanted to go ahead and get this out there for you folks to listen to as well. As you know, usually I will have a kind of a sit-down one-on-one. In this particular case, it is Joseph telling his story from the podium. Podium? Podium? What's a podium? Anyway, uh, Joseph's telling his story from the podium, and uh, you know what I found very interesting is that when Joseph got up behind the uh, podium, he um, actually had, uh, he was dressed in a Technicolor dream coat. I'm just kidding. I'm so sorry, Joseph. I'm sure you're listening to this, and <laughs> he did not have, but he, he was very well dressed. What is a Technicolor dream coat anyway? I've never seen the play. I'm sure there's something that goes behind that, but uh, I've never actually seen somebody wearing a Technicolor dream coat in public that I'm aware of. And also, you know, also when I think of the word Joseph, when I think of the name Joseph, I think of that, you know, one of my favorite movies in the world is uh, It's a Wonderful life and uh if i'm not mistaken i believe the name of the I, the big angel or god or somebody like like when 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 the Duke clarence was down there on earth and he was trying to save george bailey i'm almost positive the guy that clarence was talking to in order to try to get his wings um you know, we should come up with something like that in Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm, I'm thinking on the fly here. Uh, somebody, when somebody gets sober, an angel gets his wings. Hey, that sounds good. But nonetheless, um, I was thinking that uh, uh, Joseph is the name of the guy that Clarice was talking to when he was trying to acquire his wings, doing his good works with Mr. Uh, uh, George Bailey when he was down on Earth, Earth. And you it's a wonderful life. But nonetheless... When you listen to this episode, (laughs) I'm so sorry to go off track, you will notice, ladies and gents, that Joseph is, how do we put this, not from these parts. And when I say these parts, just in case you're new to the program, I am sitting here deep in the heart of Texas. He is a New Yorker. Uh, But we are so glad to have him in Texas and so glad he transplanted down this way. Uh, As we say in Texas, welcome to Texas, y'all. It's a great country. (laughs) Anyway, Joseph during this episode says uh, a couple things that I really loved. He says, when my eyes opened in the morning, that's when the nightmare began and i really enjoyed that oh uh, i had never i I just never heard it put that way because consciousness was what i did not Want to happen? I was fine while I was asleep, but when my eyes opened, I understood what Joseph meant. He said the nightmare began. He talks about his school dance; you really get a kick out of that. Uh, he grew a small craft bu- business, him and his family, into a fourteen million dollar business. On on the surface, that sounds like a a good thing, but not always with an alcoholic in the depths of his illness, as he said. He had a, quote, perfect, unquote, life on the outside, but not so much on the inside. He also said, surrender is when you lay down your arms and join the winning team. And he says, we make, quote, one stitch at a day, unquote, and then we look back and see the pattern of what we left behind. Absolutely love that. All right, ladies and gentlemen, friends and family. Please enjoy, Mr. Joseph. Without further ado, help me welcome, Mr. Joseph.
2: Welcome to the quarterly Tri-City Speaker Meeting. All right, we're glad you're here. Tri-City is a meeting supported by multiple North Texas groups to encourage unity through fellowship in the North Texas area. This is an open meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, meaning anyone's welcome to attend. We would especially like to welcome family and friends. Let's open with a moment of silence followed by the Serenity Prayer. Serenity Prayer God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Alcoholics Anonymous is a fellowship of men and women who share their experience, strength, and hope with each other that they may solve their common problems and help others to recover from alcoholism. The only requirement for AA membership is a desire to stop drinking. There are no dues or fees for AA membership. We are self-supporting through our own contributions. AA is not allied with any sect, denomination, politics, organization, or institution, neither endorses nor opposes any causes. Our primary purpose is to stay sober and help other alcoholics achieve sobriety. I'm Jennifer and I'm an alcoholic Tonight our speaker is Joseph S. from the Principles group. Let's give him a warm welcome All right, well, my name is Joseph. I'm an alcoholic
0: um, I've been blessed with the gift of desperation followed by the gift of sobriety since April 20th of 2015 And for that, I'm eternally grateful and so many other people Okay, well, you know my job today is to, in a general way, tell you what I was like, what happened, and what I'm like today. Um, there, there are a lot of things that um, I've learned in Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, first of all, you have to get a sponsor. I tried doing it by myself uh, for years. You know, the ism in alcoholism is I sponsor myself, right? And um, I tried that, it doesn't work, by the way. For newcomers, it doesn't work. You know, I have a sponsor, my sponsor has a sponsor, his sponsor has a sponsor, and so on, and so on, and so on. Um, I have a home group. Uh, my home group is Principals Group. We meet every Tuesday at Unity Dallas, uh, Unity Church of Dallas, every Tuesday night at um, eight PM. And if you're like, if you ever in the neighborhood, we'd love to have you. If you're in the neighborhood, would stop by. We'd love to see you. So you know, so I talk about sponsors. I talk about um, home group commitment at home group. Now, anything that I say tonight, not a lot of it may not be reconcilable with the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. So I, I, I strongly advise that you disregard that. But it's just my story. And sponsorship, home group, commitment at a home group, saying yes when Alcoholics Anonymous asks for you to do something you don't have a prior commitment. Those are all things. None of those things are in this big book. But those things are vital to my recovery. So, and I, as a result of having a sponsor, my life changes because I follow direction. You know, just like John Cole uh, came up to me before and he um, mentioned to me, uh, how to stand to the microphone, where I should be, four inches, three inches, whatever it might be. And uh, I don't know about you guys, but for years and years and years, I could not follow precise direction. <laughs> just wasn't part of my makeup. You know, you give me direction, I'm going to find some sort of loophole somewhere. So hopefully I don't find a loophole. I'm not standing back here. And I'll, I'll follow you. I'll try to do my best to follow direction. That's what I try to do these days, by the way. Anyway, so... The way I usually like to start is, uh, first of all, my sponsor is Jimmy. And I I tell you that because if I don't tell you, I'm going to get in trouble. Um, And uh, Jimmy sponsored me back in 2004, and that will be part of my story. And I'll get to there when I get to there, unless I travel down some sort of rabbit hole. But I always generally, like, what I like to do is I like to start out um, with the end game. Okay, what it kind of looked like before I showed up in Texas. First of all, if you haven't figured out already, I'm not from these parts. Um, I'm from New York, and... um, uh, and you know they told me uh, when I first showed up, man, he's a Yankee, and, but if he sticks around long enough, he'll be a damn Yankee. So whether that's true or not, I've been, I've been in Texas almost five years, and uh, so I don't know. Maybe I'm a damn Yankee. I don't know. We'll find that out. So th- what the endgame looked like for me was, wasn't too pretty. What it looked like was um, I had lost my fifth job in about a month and a half because I can clean it pretty well for a job and get a job. But usually, the employee doesn't like to smell alcohol on your breath uh, the first week you're working. So I usually held those jobs about three or four days before I got the boot. And I had just lost my fifth job, and I had resigned myself. You know, every job was going to get me sober and keep me sober. Um, that's not the case. Um, so as a result, what happens is I get those jobs, and I, I, lose, I fail those jobs, and I got fired at that fifth job. And um, at that point, I had just resigned myself. It's all over. So I'll never forget it. After I lost that job, I went out to a liquor store, bought a couple of cases of vodka, and I was just going to sit in my house and I was just going to um, just do myself in. I was going to try to drink myself to death, but for some reason, God saw fit to it that uh, I would pass out before that miracle happened. And each day I would wake up, I'd wake up to the hideous four horsemen. It's, you know, it's described in our literature, and I would curse God every morning I woke up, and I would just be like, "Why, why?" Because when my eyes opened is when the nightmare began. So. I'm, I'm there drinking these cases of vodka and, uh, you know, bottle, one bottle at a time, obviously, and, uh, and, I, and it's, magic is not happening. You know, I'm living in a house. I had just totaled my fifth car, uh, you know, while drinking. And this time, the, the time I totaled told it, which was probably a few weeks earlier, I sent that woman to the hospital, and she was suing me for close to a million dollars. As a result, I always felt like they were coming after me. I wasn't, At that point, I stopped opening up any mail that came to the house. At that moment, I stopped um, picking up any phone call that came to the house. For two months, I laid there on a sofa trying to drink myself to death, and I would get these stacks of mail, never open them, and you know, water bills, electric bills, and you know, when they don't pay those, they tend to shut the power off. They tend to shut the water off. And I'm sitting in the middle of winter in this house on a couch, that I moved over to the screen door because and it's the middle of winter, right? So it's pretty cold in the house with no heat and the doors wide open. Just because I knew if I when I did die, when I did die, I wanted the smell to emanate out of the house so the body could be found. You know, that is my best thinking. That's that's what it comes down to. That's my best thing. I you know that sounds like a great plan. And so I'm laying there and I'm, I'm noticing I hear pipes bursting in the house because it's, I guess the water's freezing in the pipes and in the, I, so one day I had the courage to walk into the basement and I found a finished basement. Now I'm living in a house that my sister lived in. Cause I was living there cause my wife had kicked me out seven years earlier. She, she had passed away and I'm in charge of selling this house. I'm in charge of getting this house ready for sale. Cause I was the only one living there. And I walked down this finished basement. I see six inches of water in the basement. And so what do I do? I just turn away. In fact, it was good for me because the water had stopped running. And when I got thirsty, you know, I would get one of those red Solo cups. And I think we know what those look like. And I would take that red Solo cup and I would go down to bed, walk down the basement door, and I would just scoop up some water off the floor. And that's what I would be drinking. That's my best thinking. Okay. So what happened was after not, after a period of time of not picking up the phone and not answering the mail and, um, and no power, no electricity, no nothing. And um, and I'm two months without a shower. My wife just happens to walk in because she was, my ex-wife I should say, walked in and she was concerned because she hadn't been in touch with me. She walked into the house and she could freely do that because the door was wide open. And when she saw me, I can't imagine what she saw. Somehow she poured me in a, a car and got me to detox. When I arrived at detox, they had done, you know, their regu- regular routine, They because I'm used to that. I'm, I'm used to arriving at detox, I kind of get the drill. And um, they, they started, you know, blood pressure, all this stuff. And they found out that my blood pressure was like 240 over something. And at that point, all I know, the next moment I'm on some sort of gurney and I'm being wheeled down some sort of hallway from the best of my recollection. And if, yeah, I, I believe they were cutting my clothes off and I'm in a room and they, they cut my clothes off. And uh, I remember distinctly uh, the doctor telling my wife, my ex-wife that um, you know, Margaret said she would, that he's either going to have a heart attack or a stroke. And my, in my mind, I wanted a stroke. I, was, I wanted a heart attack, excuse me. Because the idea of having a stroke and dying, I know, and um, you know, being paralyzed and not being able to drink, was just something I couldn't fathom. Um, so now, I, I come to about a few days later and there's uh, Margaret standing in the hospital room and she had a t- um, plane tickets to Texas in her hand. And she just, just laid them on my chest and she said, listen Joe, if you, never, if you don't go back to that treatment center, and that'll be part of my story, that you were back at in 2004, which was about 10 years earlier. You're never gonna see me and the children again. So she left the room and you know, I had to think about it. You know, in Bill's story he talks about, um, in his story he talks about he was laying in that bed and the courage to do battle was not there. And that's where I kind of stood. Um, well, there I go. I mean, I really didn't have a choice in matter, I'm off to Texas. So I wind up at a treatment center that I wound up, um, that I was at 10 years earlier back in 2004. And I'm back at that treatment center, so that's how I kind of came to Texas. I was born in Queens, New York, in a year I don't like to talk about because I know I look 25. <laughs> and I, you know, I had a pretty normal, pretty normal childhood. You know, I, I, my parents were great. I never wanted for anything growing up. Um, my, I have a, a brother. I have a, a two brothers and an, an old and a sister. Uh, that was a sister who had passed away later on. The life I had was, I didn't even want for anything. You know, I, my, my parents drank every day. You know, my father owned a little leather, uh, leather business and um, he would come every day, home every day and my mother would have the martini shaker out and they'd be shaking the martinis and they would go out to the backyard and they would drink and the neighbors would come around and, you know, they drank for the effect, just like we all do. But they also drank for the conviviality. Did my father get drunk a few times? Probably he did. There was probably a couple times he had a few too many, but my father was an alcoholic. He liked the effect produced by alcohol. He also liked the conviviality. That being said, I do have alcohols in my family. My uncle was an alcoholic. Um, I had a a cousin who died of a heroin overdose. Actually, it was an an infection from a dirty needle, whatever it might have been, but he did die from disease. Now, having family members uh, that are afflicted with our illness does not mean that does not make me an alcoholic, I've come to learn that. So what happens is I have this, now I have a twin brother and I have an identical twin. And you know, every, every so often somebody will come up to me, hey Joe, what is it like to be an identical twin? And the truth is I don't know the response to that. My usual answer is, well you have to first, if I'm gonna tell you that, tell me what it's like not to be one. But I will tell you my experience. My experience was that when you're an identical twin you tend to get compared, You know, when, especially when you're younger and people my family uh family and friends of my parents would always come around and say you know I could tell the difference rose I could tell the difference between Vin and Joe he's the happy one he's the sad one he's the one that's he's the one that's always got a smile on the face he's the one that's always frowning he's he's fatter he's thinner you know probably 50% of the time I wound up on the the positive side of the ledger but that's not what I heard i took on all that negative stuff and as a result i've always felt less than when we were going to school, my brother and I, and we had a cousin that's in this picture a little bit too, you know, when we would go to school, and, you know, I had a very overprotective mother. Every time she dropped us off at school, she would always have to sit outside in the car to watch me and my brother. And all the other kids kind of noticed that. I, so that kind of excluded me a little bit. And, then I would, and we would just hang out in the corner of the schoolyard, and everybody seemed to have the playbook to life, and I didn't get one. They you all knew where to be, how to play kickball, how to interact with each other. I would, me and my brother would just sit there in that corner and just cower. And all I could do is wish I was not there. I was never happy who I was with, what I was doing, and anything that was going on around me. So I would sit at those in that that schoolyard corner and, and wait, why doesn't the bell ring so we could finally go to school? Then when we finally did line up and get into school, I'd be sitting in that classroom looking out the window, saying, my God, when is this class gonna end? I was just never happy what I was doing, who I was with, and what, what, what was going on around me. So, you know, as a result of this, I didn't have many friends. My, my uh, It was, you know, if, if there were kids playing kickball down the block, my mother had to have eyes on us. So if, if she couldn't see us, we couldn't play. And as a, I just felt isolated. You know, I just didn't have any friends. And, you know, it was around seventh grade or so. My, uh, my mother has this idea, that well, in order to get the twins to have some friends, they need to go to a school this, this dance that the school is going on. And I, I was probably about 14 or 15 years old, and me, my brother, and my cousin were being forced to go to this dance. Now, the idea of guys and girls dancing together just was not something that I can handle. So they, she packs us up in the car, we, I, she puts us on, I've been wearing a suit probably for the first or second time in my life, and all of a sudden I'm at this school dance, and I do not want to be there. So my cousin came up with this grand scheme. Well, once your mother pulls away, finally, we can just go to my father's house, my parents' house, and um, just hang out there and then come back when right around the time the school dance is gonna be over and then we could just have her pick us up. Sounds like a great plan. So we go to my cousin's house and all of a sudden we walk in there and we're just hanging out. We got nothing going on. And my cousin just, you know, just out of nowhere goes to his father's liquor cabinet and pulls out a bottle of Canadian club whiskey. Just to reback, I you know, I think from the very start I was an alcoholic. And I'll i I'll tell you why that comes to me is because I would think about those old Westerns that I used to watch as you know as a small kid. You know, Wild West, bonanza, all that stuff. And I think about um you know that cowboy coming off the dusty trail. You know, he comes up to the, the he comes up to the saloon, he puts his horse on the hitch. Busts through those doors in the, uh, the saloon, and he walks up to that bar, and he looks at the barkeep straight in the eye, throws his coin on the bar, and I think that's a magic coin because it works in every movie and TV show. It buys you whatever you want, right? Anyway, so he flips that coin up, and the bartender automatically turns around, pulls out that bottle of whiskey, lays it on the bar, pulls out a shot glass, and pours that that uh, dusty old cowboy a shot of whiskey. And then at that point, the cowboy looks him straight in the eye, gives him a, a glare, grabs the bottle, walks to a table, and leaves the shop behind. Now for some reason, that always fascinated me. That always intrigued me. So now here I am at my cousin's house at this Bottle Canadian Club, and I, those thoughts started coming back to me. So, I, you know, and you've heard it, we've all heard it a million times. So I take that first drink of alcohol, and my life changes. When I've come to learn, all those fears, all that anxiety, all that self-pity, depression, whatever you want to call it, whatever spiritual malady you want to label it with it, melted away in a heartbeat. I had found my answer. For the first time in my life, I was who I wanted to be with, doing what I wanted to do, and being around the whole deal. I, this is what I wanted to do for the first time. So we wound up finishing that bottle, I wound up puking all over the place. I wound up taking a shower at my cousin's house, and uh, I don't know if my I don't know if my parents recognize what happened that night. But I will tell you this: my life changed. I found my magic elixir. I found it. What was the? I found the magic potion that was going to help me navigate the, the rough seas of life ahead of me. So now at a young age like that, I couldn't drink every day and I couldn't drink as much as I wanted anytime I wanted to. But, you know, anytime I would, I could. You know, we had people who would go to a sneak into a um, sneak into a, a deli and pick up some a case of beer. Or if we were lucky enough to find an older guy, he can go into a liquor store and buy us a bottle of booze. But you know, so I'm in school, you know, and I'm, in a, I'm at this point now, I graduated at, at junior high and I went, I went to regular high school. And um, that high school, well, you didn't have to be a scholar to graduate. And um, I was pretty much drinking every day at that point, and, you know, a little bit here, a little bit there. And uh, I saw there were some consequences in school. You know, I just get off. I was on this, the school band uh, playing alto sax. I got kicked out of a couple of events. You know, the consequences, you know, that school, you didn't have to be a scholar to graduate. So I did what we you just what I need to do to kind of coast by now. As a result, at this point, I'm still I'm drinking. I still don't have many friends, and I decide I gotta do something. So I saw playing guitar. As a result, I got pretty good, and I started playing these bands, and we, we got pretty good as a band. And you know, there's a story behind that, but I, I just didn't, not enough time to tell that. But um, and I got good, so now I can get involved. I, I get involved with some cliques with some cool kids, right? So now, now all this time, my father has a small little craft business, and it was kind of destined that my brother and I would be going into that. So we, now I'm in the college, and I had to make a decision between uh, going to college and building a career in my father's business or, or playing on a rock band. So I chose the business. Now, my brother and I, we, uh, our brother, my, my, my two brothers and I, we grew that small little craft business into a $14 million a year company while I was in college. And as a result, I had, now I had money. And now I'm drinking on weekends, kind of getting lit up. But you know, one thing about owning your own business or being a part of a family business is it's very difficult to get fired. You know, it's far, it's hard to fire the boss, okay? Because I was one of the bosses. But you know, and I can go, there could be another trap that could be written about this, but I actually got fired from my own family business. <laughs> yes, I pulled that off. Okay, so now, so I'm making money at the family business and I'm making a lot of money. Okay. More money than really anybody my age should be making at that point. And, um, I'm driving, you know, the smoking the bandit Trans Am. I got one of those smoking the bandit Trans Am's with a dead bird on the hood. And, um, so now at this point, I, you know, it's time to find, it's time to find, um, it's time to find a girl. So my, my friends and I, we would go to the Hamptons every so often. And one day I met this girl. We, she was at a bar. And her name was Margaret. You know, we'd be soon my future ex-wife. And um, so we we met, and you know one thing about Margaret that endeared me is first of all she was very 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 attractive. Still to this day, she's very attractive. And so I, I met her, and we got to talking. And she could drink just like I did. She can kind of keep up with me just a little bit. She wasn't an alcoholic, but she could keep up with me. You know, when I say keep up with me, make it was like drinking with somebody. Did I didn't feel so bad as much as I was drinking, you know. Now there's a long story, but we have wound up getting together, and before you know it, you know we start dating. And so she lives. Margaret lives in this area, Queens, and she, she had this one bar in her neighborhood called Ryan's. And Ryan's in this, this uh, area, Queens, it's not the best area, Queens. I will tell you this, that Ryan's always reminded me of a rundown version of Cheers. You know, it really was. They, everybody in there just had such a ball with each other. Everybody knew each other's names. And I hear I come in, this guy with the fancy car, fancy Trans Am, with this beautiful girl that everybody knows Margaret. And i had, you know, just like in Bill's story, I had arrived, you know, I had everything I wanted. I have money, I have the girl, I got the car, I got a future ahead of me that's, you know, it's just like Bill's story, you know, beautiful future lined up. So when Morgan and I dated for a bunch of years and, uh, you know, the consequences were getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, I would let her down, but you know, some, it's funny about money, funny, money can get you out of fixes. A certain gifts. Let's go on vacation. Let's want to go to Las Vegas. Let's go to Atlantic City You can get yourself out of scrapes for a little while Well, we started dating and look we loved each other and we were having a fantastic time and one day we decided it's time to get married So we did and now the picture is complete. I got the perfect picture frame, you know Family we buy a large big beautiful house out in Long Island and everything is perfect On the outside on the inside. I was dying So when we get into that house, the first thing I'm gonna do is I'm gonna set up shop. I gotta set up a bar, and I do that. And you know, Margaret used to question me, why you need to set up a bar in the house, and I would explain to her, listen, you know, we're gonna have a lot of visitors in this nice house. We need to have that, be able to entertain. The truth was, the only person I ever entertained was this guy, okay? And so now, we had a a wonderful, we, we, we had some great times. You know, I'd be lying to you to tell you if we didn't, but the alcohol was catching up on me way faster. You know, I was beginning to forge that weapon that would one day slice me into ribbons. I didn't know it. So we, we do this, and, we, and we're having so much time. We're fun. We're going on vacations. We're doing this. We're doing that. Sure, there are a lot of consequences, but like I said, the money can kind of chill that out a little bit. And, you know, it comes the time that we decide that we're going to have children. So we start to try to have kids, and um, since we waited a little life, you know, so we start trying, and nothing is happening. A year goes by, two years goes by, we're trying to have a baby, and every month I'd come home to Margaret crying that didn't work again. And I knew the reason why. She knew the reason why. It was kind of unspoken. So you know, um, going to doctors, doctor says, hey Joe, we're not, there's really nothing wrong with you, and Margaret really, is nothing wrong with you. Uh, I knew what was wrong, she did. You know, It got to a point where she, they would tell us things like when to have it, when, what day of the month to do it, what temperature it should be, what time of day, and all this type of stuff. And she, Margaret would call me every day and say, Joe, please do me a favor. On your way home from work, please don't drink. And I would swear on a stack of Bibles I wouldn't drink. But there I was every time I would get home and I'd be drunk. And when the time came, I was already. This went on for years. You know, I would sit at that bar every day at my house and Margaret would walk down the stairs and she say, Joe, why don't you come upstairs to the bedroom? And I would say, Margaret, I'll be up in a few minutes. The O'Reilly fact is on. I need to watch this. And the truth was, I just need to drink more. And every time I would pass out, it would look at my watch when I came to, and it would be three in the morning, and I'd say, oh, I better get upstairs real quiet. And I'd walk up those stairs quietly to sneak into bed, and there I would see Margaret laying there with mascara running down her face because she, she had cried to herself asleep again. Now, there's a line in um, Dr. Bob's Nightmare where he there's a, really struck home with me that this routine went on for 17 years. Now it didn't go on for 17 years, but it sure felt like it. Every time was Joe come up to bed, and I would be me passing out downstairs. So we finally had uh, our first child in vitro fertilization. Now, that was a miracle. You know, Matthew, uh, my son is a beautiful child and uh, we're blessed to have him. And so now after Matthew's born, Margaret says, hey, we gotta get busy because I want a family. So now, guess what? That in vitro wound up costing Joe about $25,000 in and he had, you know, right around there. So guess what? Now we're going to have another one. So guess what? Joe manages to stay sober because Joe does not want to spend $25,000 again. Now, to tell you I was sober was a kind of a lie a little bit. I just happened to be sober at the right times. Okay? So here we go. See, now, well, here we go. The root of my troubles are selfishness and self-centeredness. That is the problem. It's all about what Joe wants, what, on Joe's time schedule. You know, what's going to make Joe happy? You know, and that's, that, if you, and you when I do a fourth, and, when I'm doing a fourth step and discussing a fifth step with my sponsor, that's exactly what I see, show up. Now we have the family, and, you know, I could go on. I, I should. I need to get sober, but, you know, I'll just give you, um, I'll just give you one story, and then we'll move on. It's like... So we have to. So we decide we're going to do a family trip to Disney, right? So we're going to go to Disney, and um, so Margaret picks the resort. It's going to be a Disney resort, and they don't have booze at that resort. And um, she tells me we're about to we're packing for the trip, and she says, "Joe, listen, what we got to do is we need to get bathroom supplies for the trip." And he, she says, "Okay, I, I tell you what, Margaret, I will go get the bathroom supplies." She says, "Okay, great. Just do me a favor. Do not buy Perk shampoo, because that makes my head itch. It makes it flake. Blah blah blah." So I'm just like, Margaret, no, no problem. So I go out to the store to buy all these bathroom supplies. And guess what Joe does? Joe buys the biggest bottle of Pert they got. And I empty it out. And then she comes on. What do you buy that for? Oh, my mistake, Margaret. I thought you said you loved Pert. No, no, I, I don't. I would empty it out and I would fill it with Jack Daniels so we could take it to Disney with us. So we land at Miami International Airport and we're walking towards the baggage carousel. And I'm about 150 feet away from the bags when I notice this whiff in the air. And that, that distinct smell of Jack Daniels, and mixed with uh, you know clothes and socks and underwear, that, that distinct smell only an alcoholic can recognize. And as soon as we get there, I will tell you this: um, they talk about you know, Margaret was not too pleased. They say that Disney is the happiest place on earth. Not that week. <laughs> not that week. Uh, Mickey Mouse could not fix that. So now I come back from um, come back from Disney. Now starts a whole series of. Detoxes, psych wards, I tried to kill myself. Um, totaling cars, started my career of totaling cars, started um, doing all these treatment centers, you know, going to you know, I, every possible remedy but Alcoholics Anonymous. My, my, uh, my ex wife's uh, father was an alcoholic and he actually died that way. So Margaret knew a little bit about the program. And she said, Joe, what you need to do is go to AA. And I said, Well, that sounds fine. And so Margaret did the legwork, she found me a meeting. And uh, I found the church that I went to And we went to that I went to that church And I pulled up in front of it And I, I Personally I didn't know It was going to be a church And I And I parked outside And kind of freaked me out A little bit And I'm standing there And I'm like I'm not going in So What I'm going to do Is I'm going to I'm just going to make an assessment Of what Alcoholics is So I count the number of people Who walk into the meeting Which is about 23 And I figure out when they all leave, that should be the end of the meeting, right? So now I come home from that meeting and Margaret says, so how'd you like your meeting? I said, I'll tell you, I like AA. You know, they will tell me about the meeting. Well, there were 23 people there and the meetings were an hour long. So I would continue to go to that meeting, park outside, never walk in the doors, never darken in the doors in that meeting. And I kept getting drunk. So one day Margaret looked at me and she said, Joe, I don't understand. You're doing this Alcoholics Anonymous and you're not staying sober. What's going on? I said, I'm trying the best I can. And she said, well, you know, and remember, she knows a little bit about the program. She said, well, tell me, uh, tell me about, what do you, tell me about the steps. I'm like, now I have to think a little bit. And um, I remember looking at her, and like, okay. She's never been to that church. Uh, Well, first of all, there aren't any steps. The meeting is on the ground floor. Okay, so at that point, I'm busted. And uh, so then she said, have you, you know, let me tell you, she said, do you know anything about sponsorship? And I explained to her, well, my Billy must be my sponsor because he's in a program. He said Billy can't be a sponsor; he's your brother-in-law. She, you know, because one day he told me about a meeting, so he was my sponsor. Um, so she found me a sponsor. So she found me a sponsor, and I met this guy once a week. He would charge me fifty dollars, and um, every day we met. Every week we met at Nathan's, and we would sit in the. I'd sit in Nathan's parking lot, and I would drink in Nathan's parking lot. You know, because he's going to walk into Nathan's first. I'm too big a guy to be waiting on somebody else, right? And he would walk in and I'd follow, and that's when I would get out of my car and I'd go into Nathan's. I would be sitting this close to him. And I would be, you know, I'd i just put the bottle of Jack Daniels down. I'd, I'd probably talk to that guy for six months and he never called me out on my drinking. He probably didn't want to lose his payday. That was my introduction to sponsorship and Alcoholics Anonymous. It winds up that I go to this last treatment center and I go to, well not the last treatment center, there always seems to be a last treatment center. And um, I go to this treatment center in upstate New York and um, I do that for 28 days. And this time I was actually listening. I mean, I didn't crack open a book, but I was listening. And um, after 28 days, she calls me, said, so, Joe, how are you feeling? I said, I'm feeling really good. She said, well, well how about we, um, why don't we, uh, I'll pick, you know, I can't pick you up like I planned on it. Well, do you think you can get home from upstate back to Long Island? I said, absolutely. They'll drop me up at the bus station. I'll figure it out from there. So I get to Penn Station in Manhattan so I can catch the Long Island Railroad. And I'm standing at Penn Station, 28 days sober, You know, and I felt like a million bucks. I really did. I really did. You know, hiking, yoga, all that stuff makes you feel pretty good. So I'm sitting in, there's a TGI Fridays. I got 20 minutes to train. One beer won't hurt. So I, I go, 20 minutes to train, I go and grab myself a beer at the TGI Fridays, and all of a sudden that 20 minutes went pretty quick. And that paint that train went on by so I kind of calculated how long it would take you know what train I had to catch to get home on time so I did that I managed to pull that off and I get home and I'll never forget I ran to that phone picked it up when I got home because I had to beat Margaret home right because uh, she called me first thing in the morning and I get I pick up the phone and I say Margaret I just want to let you know I'm home safe and she says I can hear it in your voice I said what are you talking about I can hear it in your voice have you been drinking I said Margaret I got 28 days are you kidding The click. You don't hear that click anymore. All of a sudden, at my door appear two members of Alcoholics Anonymous. And they come in and they talk to me. And they said, Joe, listen, what happened? We heard you drinking. And um, I told them, I I think Margaret's out of her mind. And she could see I was drinking. And they said, Joe, just pack up your stuff. We're bringing you back up to that treatment center. And they did. And I said, well, first of all, you don't have to worry about packing. Stuff's still in the car. And we went up to that treatment center. I get there. I land there at that treatment center. And I'm, I'm there in upstate New York. And they don't know what to do with me. I drank on the way home from 28-Day Treatment Center. So they they kind of put me in a limbo state where they just kind of isolated me for a few days. And all of a sudden, they called me into the office, and there's Margaret and them sitting together. And they sat down. I said, oh, okay, now this is the ambush. Here's intervention. I've never been intervened intervened before. This is a new chapter. But it wasn't an intervention. What they just told me was that there was this treatment center in Texas, in Kaufman, Texas. And there was a guy down there by the name of Mark Houston. Some of you may have heard of him, remember, from the past And mark houston will get you sober joe But the trick is this this program is three months long now three months is an eternity Especially for a guy like me, right? I, you know, i'd been fired from that business already, by the way Um, I didn't have time for that. So I go here I go So I had no choice in matter. So I go to this three-month treatment center, but I was bamboozled I show up at that treatment center. It turns out it's one year long They had tricked me. So I wind up at that treatment center, but I will tell you this for the first time I went there and I was, Mark Houston was doing a big book study out there at that treatment center and he said something. He looked at me because I was a new guy in the community. He said, hey, Joe, listen, I heard you drank and um, did you make, did you, let me ask you a question, Joe, did you make that decision to drink? I said, sure I did. And all of a sudden the other residents of that community started giggling and laughing. They seemed to know something that I didn't, that Joseph had lost the power of choice in drink. Then we talked about how drinking had not been my problem, had been my solution. These ideas were revolutionary to me, revolutionary. So for the first time I cracked open a book and I got a sponsor, this is back in 2004 and the sponsor's name was Jimmy Dean. So I I go through the steps with Jimmy and everything is good. I mean I'm killing it out at this treatment center. I was there for nine months and I was so good that I actually graduated one year treatment center in nine months. So I get back to New York and I stay sober for about another year. And uh, it's time to do Disney all over again. This time we're going to do Disney the right way, right? So all of a sudden my kids are still small at this time. And uh, my wife calls me. She says, Joe, listen, I just wanted to let you know, uh, Matthew and Grace are dying for you to get home because they won't pack because we're going to Disney the following day. I'm at work. And they won't pack until you get home. When are you coming home? And all of a sudden I said, you know, I looked at my boss and I said, listen, is it okay if I leave early? He goes, yeah, absolutely. You're going to enjoy yourself. I leave that work, and I, I'm, as I'm walking to the car, remember, now I'm about two years sober, right? And I'm walking to that car, and I see a liquor store. I oh, no, a bar, sorry, excuse me. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, the kids are all happy and excited and waiting for dad to come home, and I'm kind of like, eh. I'm just gonna do one shot, Jack Daniels. So I walk in that bar and I order a shot, it's actually a double shot. It did exactly, you know, alcohol works, by the way, in moderation. So I take that drink, And it did exactly what it does. All that ease and comfort that comes from taking just a few drinks came over me. And I knew I'd look, I have to put two years of sobriety. I don't want to get busted for drinking. I got two years of sobriety I'm holding on to. So I stopped there and I go home and guess what? I'm home with the kids and alcohol does what it does and I'm feeling great and I'm packed with the kids and we have a great time in Disney. But you know, the entire week I was in Disney, I wasn't craving a drink. What was going on was the mental obsession. All I could think to myself was, you know, it wasn't that bad. I mean, I got two years. Maybe I can have a drink every so often take the edge off. Maybe I'm, you know, in my mind, I guess I was cured. So now what happens, we get home from Disney. We go, we, uh, we get to the front door with our luggage. And I look at Margaret and say, Margaret, listen, I am, uh, you stop unpacking. And I'm going to just run to get my dry clean because I, I have to go back to work tomorrow. And that's what the plan was. I go to my dry cleaner, get my dry cleaning, and there is the liquor store that I shopped at for my entire life while I was with Margaret in Long Island. I walk into that liquor store. I know, I almost kind of just kind of floated into it. And I walk into that liquor store, and the guy recognizes me. He says, Joe, where have you been? He said, you look good. You know, two years of sobriety will do that, right? I said, hey, you know, I laid off the sauce for a little while. He says, well, Jack Daniels, right? And I'm like, yeah. And he, now he used to keep the Jack Daniels under the counter for me because why walk back every time, right? This time he had to walk back. Well, I didn't want to make a waste of trip, So I actually said, do me a favor, get me two bottles. And I had a perfect plan. It was gonna be one bottle in the car, one bottle in the house. Every time I needed to take a sip, I take a sip and it'll be good, right? Just like I did at that bar a week ago. Just one shot, one double shot. Well, those two bottles of Jack Daniels were gone in a day and a half of my marriage was gone in two years. Now I get divorced, I'm living in that house with my sister with the pipes bursting, wind up in detox with her laying tickets in Texas on me seven years later. Seven years of nonstop drinking. I couldn't stay sober a day. So now here I'm back in Texas at the same treatment center that I was back at in 2004. When I showed up at that treatment center, they told me something real simple. They said, Joe, look, you've already done this deal. You're gonna be a short leash. I didn't realize how short the leash was. So I'm at this hardcore treatment center and about six months into it, they told me I gotta go. By the way, that treatment center was now a two-year treatment center. So, I six, so, six, so, so six months sober, I'm kicked out of that treatment center. I've, they dropped me off at this, this place. I don't know where I am. I'm, not, I'm from New York. I'm not from Texas. And they just dropped me off somewhere. I got, got my clothes and garbage bags, and I set them down, and somebody walked off with them. And I have $6 on me, and I'm walking homeless for a few days. And all of a sudden, I you know the only person in the world who's going to talk to me is my sponsor, who I had at that treatment center, who I had knew I knew the phone number. This is now this is two thousand fifteen. So I call. So I finally asked somebody, "Can you let me his phone?" I had six dollars on me. He charged me five dollars to use his phone. So now I'm down to a dollar. I called my sponsor. He picks me up. I say, "Jess." Now this is my, this is my second sponsor. Now is Jess Lampier. And he picks me up and he says, and I tell him, I just, I got a plan. Let's get to your house. I'm going to call my brother in New York. You're going to, he won't recognize the number. He'll he might pick up the phone because I burnt every bridge in New York and I got to, I'll talk him to a plane ticket back to New York. I got to get out of Texas. He said, yeah, that sounds like a plan. Let's talk about it on the way. He had other ideas. What he did was he tricked me just like everybody seems to be tricking me in my life. Right. And he tricked me and he dropped me off at um, the Dallas 24 hour club. So there I find myself at the Dallas 24-hour club. And if any of you know it, know it back in the day, it was a dilapidated old building, cockroaches, begbugs, rats. It was a condemned building. Every window in the building was broken. There were plywood boards on it. There was no light coming in, no light going out. And I'm over there and i stand there and I can't believe, he, I'm cursing my sponsor out at the time. And he said, um, you know, he made me quit smoking when I started drinking, when I, start, when I stopped drinking. It was just okay. I mean, I wanted to stop anyway. And I threatened him. I said, if you're going to drop me off this dump, guess what, Jess? I'm going to start smoking again. And he said, I don't care, you can burn for all I care. <laughs> so, I, so he drops me off there, and I, I walk in, I do my intake, and I go to the bathroom to give them a UA that they require, and there's bed bugs all over the toilet paper. So I, I put the UA on the, the intake office's desk, and I run outside, so I scream at my sponsor. I said, you can't, there's just no way I'm doing this. He said, you just get your butt back in there. So I did. And all of a sudden, I'm sitting there, and all of a sudden, the guy starts laughing. He says, you're a Yankee, aren't you? I said, yes. He said, you're from that treatment center in Kaufman, aren't you? Yes. He said, you guys don't make it a day here. So he pulls out a piece of paper, a 30-day commitment letter that he wanted me to sign. So I, this is my ticket out. So I was happy to see it, because I showed it to my sponsor. I go back out to the parking lot. Hey, Jess, I, they can't take me. He said, why, they don't have any space? No, oh, they got space. Nobody wants to live there. Bed bugs all over it. But they want me to think, they think that I'm gonna actually stay there 30 days. Yes, you are. Get back in there. So now I get back in. Now I have to swallow some pride. Show back up and now that guy is off the chain. He's just laughing. This, this guy's doing my intake. Because I didn't know he could every word I was saying through those paper in the walls of the old place. <laughs> and um, so he does my intake and I'm in, I'm in the Dallas 24-Hour Club and I'm laying there and, you know, they're not doing it right. They don't know how to do AA at the Dallas 24-Hour Club. They don't do it right. Because I'm at this hardcore treatment center. They have this 7 a.m. morning meditation meeting. And it never starts at 7 a.m. Sometimes it doesn't go on at all. There's always three, there's only three people at that meeting, and they're there for the free coffee, right? And I'm now I have a reason to call and start, you know, screaming at my sponsor again. So I called Jess. I said, Jess, what the hell? Let me tell you about this place. They got a, they don't, they don't know how to do AA, man. And I tell him about this. And he said, So what are you going to do about that meeting? I said, What you're going to do about it? You're going to pick me up and get me out of here. He said, No, what are you going to do about it? He said, Well, why don't you start chairing that meeting? and making sure it starts off every day at seven o'clock. Well, I told him, what's that gonna do? He said, you'll see. So I started doing that. You know, when I, when I showed up at the 24-hour club, do you ever remember that movie, Shawshank Redemption? Okay, now one scene where the heavy set guy walks into the, the prison, and he walks in there, and he goes, you do understand, I don't belong here, you don't understand, that guy? That was me at the 24-hour club, right? So, so, So I started chairing this meeting because my sponsor told me I should. So I started doing that, and and before you know it, I'll never forget, two guys walked in once from this this old sobriety treatment house that's close by, and they two guys walk in, and they go, what's going on here? And I'm looking, because I'm setting up the meeting, and sometimes there's people sleeping on the floor, but I set the tables up on top of them because they might hear something, right? And um, there's two guys walking. So what's going on here? I said, well, it's, we're having a seven, seven o'clock morning meditation meeting. I said, yeah, but when we're in trouble at that other treatment center, they send us here to go to this meeting, but it's never going on. Well, it's going on today. Sit down. So they sit down. Before you know it, that meeting, which was five, six people maybe, so I turned to 10, 12. Every so often, treatment centers would be bringing vans there. I had nothing to do with that. Like following the direction, standing by a microphone. I just followed direction. And things start to happen. It was about my third or fourth week of living at the 24-hour club that I was sleeping on the mat at the 24-hour club. And I had been separated from alcohol for about seven months. I haven't had had drinking drink in about seven months. And if you would have asked me that day, are you surrendered to alcohol? I would say, yeah, I got seven months. But the truth was, I had an experience at the 24-hour club. I was laying on the mat one day, one night, with the snorkestra going, you know, 25 guys on the floor. <laughs> you know, we had the tenors over here, the bass over there, the altos over there. I had it all figured out. And one day, I'll never forget the moment, I could remember it like it was yesterday. That sense of ease and comfort from taking a few drinks came over me, and I hadn't had a shot of Jack Daniels in me. I had a spiritual experience on the floor, and I didn't share that for a long time. I held that in because I was afraid if I told people about it, it, would become, it wouldn't be real anymore. What happened was the 10-step promises came true for me sleeping on the flat of the mat of the 24-hour club. I'd cease fighting anything and anyone, including alcohol and the 24 hour club. So what happened was there, that's when I surrendered, not, not the day before when I had seven months, it was seven months in one day. That's the day I surrendered alcohol, when I stopped fighting. You know, the best definition I ever heard of surrender is when we lay your arms down and join the winning team. So there, now all of a sudden, I decided at this point, I gotta be part of the solution and not the problem of this place, okay? And what I started doing is I started sponsoring guys. I started being of service. I started doing people's chores and you know, my sponsor said, hey Joe, you know what you need to do? Three random acts of kindness a day. Well, what is a random act of kindness? He said, come on Joe, just do something for somebody else without them knowing about it, don't expect any credit. So I started. okay, he said, where do I find him? He said, Joe, you're living at the 24 hour club, they're all over, okay? So I did three and I'll never forget the second day he said, Joe, did you do your three random acts of kindness? I said, yes, and he said, what were they? I said, X, Y, and Z. And he said, okay, now that you told me, tomorrow you have to do six, because they're not random anymore, because you, you, you expected credit. So I got, now I drove home the point of what he was trying to get at. I started doing things like that at the 24-hour club. Started getting involved, started participating in other people's recovery, not just mine, because that's where the secret mojo was. That's the one thing I didn't, that I didn't get from these other treatment centers. And I said, there's nothing wrong with treatment. There's just something wrong with Joe. All of a sudden, there was always somebody who had it worse than me at the Dallas 24-Hour Club that I could be of service to. Instead of this big book, this big book is a, gives us a list of instructions, which are great. And I, I've i read this book so many different times, and I could tell you where it is, what paragraph, where to find it, what page. But at the 24-Hour Club, I, at that, in that situation I was in, I finally put that spiritual program of, into action. All of a sudden, that self-knowledge that avails me nothing went from here to the heart That was um and that you know it's funny when i was at the 24-hour club this first about five six months maybe yeah you know, i would always talk to people hey man as soon as i make enough money i'm getting a plane ticket going back to new york and everybody was turning is a big joke yeah joe when are you going back to new york you're still here ah <laughs> and um you know and i and my kids i have to get back to new york i mean you know my kids you know they remember the heavy set kid guy you remember the guy with the jack daniels hidden in his sock yeah, you know, he got that guy who got drunk at the movies, but he took him to see the movies. You know, they needed to see the new and approve Joe. Then they would start accepting me and start holding on to all this resentment. They needed to see me. I got to show them what I'm up to. One day I was at that seven o'clock morning meditation meeting that I, my sponsor told me to start and get running right. And at that meeting, every every meeting we would say this, the um, St. Francis prayer, the 11 step prayer. And there's one line I'll never forget. One, I used to say it with everybody else. And instead of one day instead of saying it, I decided maybe I should listen. So I listened to that prayer and there's one line that was revolutionary to me. I heard the line for the first time even though I said it a thousand times, was it's better to understand than to be understood. It's not so much that my children have to understand what I'm up to. It's better that I respect their feelings and understand what they're going through. So immediately that thousand pound gorilla to get back to New York was lifted off my shoulders. All of a sudden, that desire, I have to do this and do that. So now, I'm going to just try to wrap this up as quickly as I can, but I stayed at the Dallas 24-Hour Club for 13 months. Remember that guy? I don't belong here. 13 months. You know, my sponsor, about four months into that place, he said to me, Joe, listen, you're sober, you're you're waiting tables, you're making a lot of money. You know, when when I say a lot of money, you know, a lot of money for living at the 24-Hour Club. He said, it's time for you to give up that bed to somebody who needs it. And I told him, Nobody, this place never fills because the bed bugs would run out. I said, Jess, when this place fills up, I'll move out. So I wound up staying there 13 months because, and the reason why I moved out is because the city of Dallas finally condemned the place. You know, so they, got, they had enough of the, the eyesore in, uh, in East Dallas over there. So they condemned the place and that's when I moved out. I, all I did at the Dallas 24-hour club, and, and any, any, portion, any, any portion of my recovery, when I'm taking the steps, whether I'm working with a new man, whether I'm helping somebody take the trash out, all I do is suit up and show up each day. Every day I just do one stitch. I just do one, two, so I'm gonna just do, you know, my, my sponsor said, you know, you'd have to learn to live life by spiritual principles, Joe. Now, if you know Joe, that's a, that's a tall order to ask. But what I found was by doing the next right thing, I'm living my life, I find myself living my life by spiritual principles. And when I do something wrong, I tell on myself. So every day I suit up, show up, do that one stitch a day, one stitch a day, one stitch, what can I do? One stitch a day, one stitch a day, one stitch a day. And before you know it, after a month, two months, three months, six months, a year goes by, I look behind me and there is a pattern created that I had absolutely nothing to do with. Those series of stitches created a pattern I had nothing to do with. And that's all a result of working the steps, finding a power greater than myself that lies within each one of us. It doesn't live up there. All of a sudden I found myself doing things. I go, God put me in a position where I was doing for myself. where I could, he was doing for me what I could not do for myself, you know, but I didn't see it on a daily basis, but I felt it. So I'm living. I so saw, I'm, at that point, I, you know, somebody found out some of the stuff that I was doing at the 24 Hour Club, and I wound up working. And they said, Are you that Joey Bag of Donuts who was uh, living at the 24 Hour Club? And I said, Yeah, I'm that Joey Bag of Donuts because I remember I was heavy when I showed up. Um, I, was, yeah, I, was, I was about 70 pounds heavier, so they called me Joey Bag of Donuts. And yeah, I said, Yeah, I'm that guy. He said, Well, we'd like to talk to you. We have a treatment center here in Richardson, and we'd like you to work for our treatment center. I'm like, Well, I'm slinging. you know, how much does it pay? And they told me, I'm like, That's a third of what I'm making here. So I hung up the phone with them, and I said, I thought to myself, what am I doing? I mean, really? I'm X, Y, and Z old. Remember what I'm telling you? And you're slinging stakes. Maybe it's time to do something different. So what I did is I accepted that job and I worked at that $6,000 a month treatment center for 11 months until I got a phone call. And what happened was the board members of the Dallas 24-Hour Club were building a new facility. Now, I really didn't pay much of time to it. I didn't check it out on Facebook. I wasn't you know, asking people, what's, how's the new place going? By the time, it was kind of a thing of the past for me. But it never left my heart. And I got a call from them, and they said, "Listen, Joe, we're starting. A, we're 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 building a new facility, and we we were thinking about a, a program manager to have out here. We we need a second one, and we want you to become a program manager at Dallas for our Club. What do you think?" My response to them was, "Let me call my sponsor." Following direction, because my thinking usually gets me drunk. So all of a sudden, I'm now in a position where. I am one of the program directors out at the Dallas 24 Hour Club. And if you haven't been out there, it's a beautiful facility, 92 residents, a place that I call home, same address, they built up, they knocked down the old place, built up a new one. My life had seemed to have come full circle. But you know, it doesn't come full circle because one stitch at a time, I'm still doing that. The longer I stay, the longer I do those one stitches a day, that pattern is getting bigger and bigger. And I have no control of it. You know, today I have a life. That I didn't ask for, but I completely want. You know, that first day I was in treatment and if they had given me a blank piece of paper and they'd say, hey, Joe, listen, could you write five things you want from sobriety down? I would have wrote five things down. Today, I don't have any of those things because if I had gotten what I thought I wanted, I would have sold myself short. We read how it works before the meeting every time, Right. And there's one line in there, we had to let go of old ideas, the result was nil, until we let go, absolutely. The truth was, I mean, I would love to tell you I'm a rocket scientist, I'm not, I'm an alcoholic, but what happens is I live life moving forward, but I understand it when I look back. And what I noticed when I look back was, when I started, every time in the past when I started to get sober, I started to get back the things that I thought I wanted. And the truth was, looking back at my experience, I was always searching for happiness in the same place I had lost it. You know, because the number one reason for relapse is not finances, not romances. The number one reason for relapse is sobriety. Because every time I got drunk, I was sober first. So what is it about sobriety that Joe doesn't like? So today, I have a life beyond my wildest dreams. And I used to hear that shared from the podium. I used to go to those meetings in Long Island with my BMW. I upgraded from the Dead Bird Trans Am to the the BMWs. And I used to go to those meetings uh, and I would hear that pod- guy at the podium sharing about, oh, my life is beyond my wildest dream, blah, blah, blah. And I would say, man, I guess me, he's got a great life. And then I'd walk out to the parking lot, he'd be getting in his 1981 POS, and I'd be getting in my $70,000 BMW. I'm thinking, this AA is full of it. But you know what the old timers used to say is that this is an inside job. I never, I understood what they meant intellectually, but I didn't understand until I actually worked the 12 Steps of Alcoholics Anonymous in order With a sponsor, I didn't fire and he didn't fire me. Took all 12 steps and continue to take all 12 steps. And I would like to just share this passage with you and I'll wrap it up. Okay, um, this is on page 100, this first paragraph. Because this, and I share this paragraph because this is my experience. All these promises in this big book have come true for me. Just as a result of surrendering and working all 12 steps. Both you and the new man must walk day by day in the path of spiritual progress. If you persist, remarkable things will happen. When we look back, we will realize that the things that came to us when we put ourselves in God's hands were far better than anything we could have planned. Follow the dictates of a higher power and you'll presently live in a new and wonderful world no matter what your present circumstances. Now, I share that, that passage with you because that's my experience. That is my experience. I got drunk because I liked the effect produced by alcohol. Today I stay sober because I love the effects produced by Alcoholics Anonymous. Thank you for having me.
1: Thank you very much, Mr. Joseph, for sharing your story. It was a pleasure being there with you while you were telling your story that night and spending time with you. And I am quite sure that the Soberspeak listeners will be blessed by your story as well. All right, now for a little bit of a Soberspeak feedback here. Kate writes in, and Kate says, Thank you for your service. I live in Wilmington, Delaware. Delaware, I think that is the smallest state in our... Oh, no, Delaware, is it Delaware or Rhode Island? I always get confused as to where the, which one is the smallest state in our union. I think it's Rhode Island, but I think Delaware runs a close second, if I'm not mistaken. Nonetheless, this, ladies and gentlemen, is not a geography lesson. This is Silver speak. Anyway, she says, Kate says, by the grace of God... I have been sober since March 22nd of 1988. That is by the grace of God, Mrs. Kate. Congratulations. I found SoberSpeak through the Podbean app. I was driving more and looking for AA speakers when I happened upon it. I really enjoy the variety of speakers and the different perspectives. Having been in AA... Uh, in the same area for a long time, my hearing is biased. I can almost predict what some people will say. Listening to people from different places keeps the message fresh. I. Miss K can completely relate. And you know, also, I'm sure that when people hear me speak in meetings or even on this podcast, right? Sometimes they can predict what I am going to say next. And I know exactly what you mean. It helps to keep the message fresh. That is such a good way to put that. Thank you. She says, I loved in big capital letters Brenda J's podcast, and I have forwarded them to other women in recovery. She made me laugh cry and remember to be grateful and keep it real i've also enjoyed the Al on speakers thank you again for your service kate well thank you kate for writing in up there in delaware uh yvonne h writes in from new zealand now if you're from new zealand i believe that that means you are a kiwi is that right am i am i am i uh, saying that right a kiwi if you're from new zealand so uh, thank you very much miss uh Yvonne from New Zealand, right now she says Kia ora, John, and that's a big deal over there in New Zealand. Kia ora, uh, I'm my name is Yvonne H from New Zealand, and my sponsor is Rebecca T. Uh, and she told me about Sober Speak. I'm two years and five months sober from alcohol, and I would love to join the secret Facebook group. Well, as you know, Yvonne we got you out that invite. Look forward to seeing you inside. The uh, Facebook group. Anyway, she says I love the diversity of sober speak, and that some speakers are in other fellowship, other fellowships. Also, I've battled bulimia for years and have recently surrendered to the to to the disease through ABA, which is uh, anorexics and bulimics anonymous. You know, I did not even know there was an ABA. And thank you for sharing that. Hopefully somebody out there needs to hear that, Yvonne. By the way, I have a... Uh experience within that realm. Not with me personally, but uh, my mother uh, grew up. Uh, she, When I was growing up, she was anorexic and bulimic. And uh, I completely understand that. And uh, uh, anyway, just kind of takes me back. Anyway, she says, uh, listening to the experience, strength, and hope of the 12 steps is so empowering. And I think it's great. And recovery is slowly becoming normalized. I'm such a great I'm such a grateful alcoholic and I thank you for your wife whose story gave me courage for your humility, generosity, and service. God bless you, Yvonne H. Well hello, Miss Kiwi Yvonne H. I oh I hope I'm I, I did you uh, justice in my really, really bad accent. But uh, anyway, I think that is a Kiwi, like the fruit, right? Somehow or whatever. I think people from New, New Zealand are known as Kiwis. And I, I hope it's not, oh gosh, I should really research this stuff before I start out. hope it's not a derogatory term or anything like that. I don't think it is. But anyway, Faith writes in and Faith says, I got to have faith, faith, faith. I got to have faith, 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 baby. She said nothing like that, but she did write in and she says, wow, I am listening to the Beyond Belief interview you did. She's talking to me, moi, um, that I did on another podcast called AA Beyond Belief. And she says, and I learned your mom had OCD. My mom did too, and I do the clinical checking and repeating actions, repetitive thought kind of OCD. I wonder how common that is for alcoholics 40 years plus. I blamed all my, oh, I wonder how uh, common that is for alcohols. For 40 years plus, I blamed all my struggles on OCD and I didn't realize how much my drinking was making everything so much worse. When alcoholism was described as obsessions and compulsions, I heard that in meetings and I think the book says it too, I was able to wrap my head around the description because I had so much experience with that. I enjoy listening to both Sober Speak and AA Beyond Belief. I'm happy to hear this episode. Um, she says, I'm going to the secular conference in October in Beth. Fesda, Maryland. I live there, and hope to uh, and I hope to attend. It would be really cool to meet you. I hope you have a great weekend, Faith. Well, Faith, I will not be in attendance at the conference. At least I'm not planning on it now. You never can tell what's going to happen, but. Uh uh please do say hello to my friend John out there who heads up that particular podcast AA Beyond Belief. It's a uh for those of you out there who will who are looking for a like a secular conference or a secular type of podcast, this would be the podcast and the organization for you. But uh thanks for writing in Faith. I sure do appreciate it. All right, so we had a few secret Facebook posts uh, and I wanted to read some of these. Uh, Whitney wrote in and she says, I just want to give a big thank you to John and John M and this podcast. I started a new job a couple of months ago and have gone back and forth between meetings uh, and really loving it, and just completely overwhelmed, I have been making a lot of meetings, but having a podcast to listen to in the mornings has just been so incredibly helpful. There have been several that this meeting between meetings have ke- oh there have been several times that this meeting between meetings have kept me afloat, so grateful to have it in my life well, thank you Whitney and i 'm so glad that as I'll say to all the folks, right, that we can be a, a, a supplement to your recovery. Uh, I'm so glad that we can be that meeting between meetings. And I'm so glad that uh, um, I and everybody on this podcast can be a part of your journey. It is an honor and a privilege. David wrote in and he said, listening to the Sober Speak podcast during the work commute helps me so much uh, with five exclamation points. (laughs) I do it too. Exclamation point. It takes away all the stress from the traffic. And now that I think about it, I don't even notice traffic anymore. Well, you know what? I never thought about sober speak helping to eliminate the stresses of traffic, but I'm sure glad it has helped to do that. Mike writes in, he says, me too. I listened to uh, I listen to it on the Long Island Railroad most mornings. Listen nonstop my first 90 days. Huge help. Well, so if anyone's out there and you're on the Long Island Railroad and you see somebody with earbuds in, it could be Mike listening to the podcast. You never know. Uh, but anyway, uh, Andrew wrote in, wrote in and he says, I do the same thing. I've been communicating for an hour every day for a year. And I just got introduced to the podcast a few months ago. It is a game changer for me. Well, I'm so glad that it could do that for you, Andrew. And thank you all for writing in. <clears throat> Excuse me. And you know what? I'm going to leave that little coffin there because, I do not want to go back and edit it out because of all the time it takes to be perfect. And you know what? I don't have to be perfect. So anyway, Tim writes in, and this is on the Instagram. And Tim says, I really enjoyed Bill C. Steps 1, 2, and 3 of Alcoholics Anonymous. And in it, he says, the source of... Of all my suffering in life is my inability to accept things just exactly as they are, unquote. Well, thanks for writing that in, Tim. And yeah, if you haven't heard that episode, it's like uh two back from this one, I think. It's called Bill C. Steps 1, 2, and 3 of Alcoholics Anonymous. I highly recommend it. Kaylee wrote in on the Instagram and she says, I love the podcast. I just listened to Gary Kay's latest. Keep up the great work. Well, thank you, Kaylee. I appreciate it. Mashunda writes in on the Instagram and she says, I'm looking for pages, pages on Instagram is what she's talking about to be fed big smiley face she goes i love the sober speak facebook page so i wanted to follow on instagram thank you for continuing to carry the message well you know Mashunda, and i mentioned this before but uh, i appreciate it but uh you know, uh, Miss Cassandra is the one who makes uh, all those uh, various posts. I I handle all the direct messages and such, but Miss Cassandra makes those, and she does an absolutely fantastic. And hopefully, whatever she's putting out there will help to feed you, and uh, it certainly does help to feed me. Uh, Stephanie writes in, and she says, "I was just listening to your podcast yesterday, John M." Exclamation point. That's what brought me here. Smiley face. I'm 26 days sober today. And then she made a little amend. She goes, oops, 25. That's okay, Stephanie. So hopefully by the time I'm actually reading this, uh, you're into the 30s or so, nonetheless. All right, everybody. I think that wraps it up for another week. And uh, for all you Kiwis out there, thanks for listening in. I just like saying the word Kiwis. I don't know what it is. Kiwis, Kiwis, Kiwis. Or, or should I say Kiwis, Kiwis, Kiwis from New Zealand. Um, anyway, God bless all of you. I love you. I'll take it a week at a time. I think I'm going to be back next week. I'm going to do my darndest. Darndest, okay? I'm just gonna do my absolute darndest. Adios.